Our scripture passage tonight is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered him, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. These are the words of our Lord. Uh, We're wrapping up our series on why believing matters uh, this semester, because we're coming to the section of the Apostles' Creed where really... Uh, the rubber starts to meet the road. Um, In other words, things turn, uh, how we might say, uncomfortably practical. And the reason why that's the case is because tonight we're going to find that at least in the Apostles' Creed calculus, you cannot believe in Jesus without belonging to his body. Or this thing that we call, Christians refer to as, the church. Okay? Look, y'all, throughout Christianity's 2,000-year history, really minus the last 150 years or so, there really was no dividing line between your involvement with Jesus, catch this, we're just jumping right into it tonight, (laughs) between your involvement with Jesus And your involvement with the visible expression of Jesus' body that we call the church. There was no separation between those two. So much so that it would lead an early church father, an ancient church father by the name of Cyprian, to say this. To say you cannot have God as your father if you do not have the church as your mother. Okay. I decided, you know, you always try to think of these clever ways to sort of introduce your topic. But I thought, you know what? That's probably controversial enough all by itself. (laughs) 
I honestly don't think that I could be more countercultural to you here tonight than simply by saying what I just said. Because among your generation, there is a tidal wave of antagonism towards any mention, honestly, of the word church. There's a lot of baggage that your generation carries with that particular idea for at least two reasons. The first reason is, is that your generation inherently distrusts institutions, really of any kind, right? In other words, for some reason, the idea that the church, you know, Christianity might somehow be wrapped up in an organization with laws and with, you know, rules of membership, almost instinctively smacks to you of, of the inauthentic. But, but secondly, even for those who admit that the church exists and actually think that it's kind of important, typically when they talk about the church will take what I'll refer to tonight as a little bit of a cop-out. In other words, you'll look and say, yeah, the church is all great and everything, but I don't go less to a local church. You see, my church is what I call the invisible church. That is, you know, like all the Christians who are just kind of out there. Truth is less, I've had some great worship services in my bed on Sunday mornings. <laughs> okay, excellent. Good for you. Um, look, I simply want to say this tonight in introduction. It takes a whole lot of faith to say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and in the communion of the saints. It takes a lot of faith for your generation to say that and actually to believe it. And I hope to try to unpack that for you a little bit tonight <clears throat> through looking at the conversion <clears throat> of what is, I think, without question, one of the most prolific of early church members. His name was the Apostle Paul. Now, you may be unaware of the fact that prior to becoming the Apostle Paul, he was a Jewish rabbi known as Saul. Had his name changed, actually, right after the event that we just had read to us tonight. But what I want to look at tonight is three things. First of all, the reality of the church. I want to look, secondly, at the meaning of the church. And then, finally, the challenge of the church. Catch that? The reality, the meaning, and then the challenge of the idea of the church. Okay, look, our passage tonight has young Saul, right? Still, it says, breathing out murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. And suddenly he comes and has a dramatic experience. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever heard people teach on this passage, a lot of times they'll say, so this goes to show that the way in which God typically deals with people is through this sort of once-in-life, earth-shattering, world-shifting train wreck of boom influence. And suddenly Saul is just like, I'm a Christian. And there's a lot of people that read these stories and think that that's exactly how their path is supposed to be. Ah, not so fast. I actually want to submit to you that this is not something that just sort of crashed in on Saul. Saul actually had been prepped for this. He mentions it when he tells this story a little while later in the book of Acts to King Agrippa. When he's telling the story to King Agrippa, he actually adds a little detail that Jesus said to him when he first appeared to him on the road to Damascus. In other words, in that version, Jesus looks and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And when you were a little kid, you read that and you were like, what's a goad? 
And of course, we still don't know what a goad is. Well, I'll tell you. A goad was a little sharp stick that a shepherd might use to, shall we say, motivate the sheep. He would just sort of give little pokes here and there, little stabs, if you will, in the sheep in order to keep them sort of motivating the way in which they should go. But now hear what Jesus says. He's saying, Saul, I want you to know that up until this time, I can describe your life as being like unto someone who is on the wrong end of a little stabbing stick and you're kicking against it. (laughs) In other words, you have been delivering little stabs to your own heart through this entire experience through your rebellion. We actually find out in the book of Romans that Paul talks about that it was the law. It was God's law that really began to really wreck his life. Most um, uh, specifically the 10th commandment about not coveting. In other words, God demanded that Paul and Saul actually be completely content at all times. And Saul was like, when I heard that, it was like I died. Kicking against the goads. So look, don't be fooled into thinking that this was like some boom, Saul gets knocked out of the blue and suddenly he is who he is. No, there was a buildup. God had been dealing with him up until this moment. I wonder how many of you would relate actually your own experience of actually coming to a place of believing by saying, I really did feel like he was kind of after me more than I felt like I was after him. Hmm. Look, but the bottom line is Saul was called out of all of that. And it just so happens that that's what the best definition for what the word church means In the Greek word, the word church literally translated means the called out ones. That is, it is exactly what the creed means when we say we believe in the holy church. You see, in the Old Testament, there were these um, temple utensils, little little pieces of uh, uh, utensils that they used to serve in the, the temple area there that were set apart. And God referred to them as being holy not because they possessed any sort of moral quality necessarily, but because they were, they were set apart. They were different. <clears throat> they were pulled out of life into a community of earth. That's what God's people are. The people that constitute the church are those who have been called out. Now what that means is this, is that when God's people have gathered in the places of worship where they are supposed to, most specifically the temple, if you were an ancient Jew... The temple was not the place that was sort of like heaven or a reminder of God's presence. It was way more than that. When you went to the temple, that was the place where heaven and earth actually intersected. In other words, the church was the nearest place. The temple was the nearest place where you could experience what heaven was like. So much so that the apostle Peter, later on in one of his letters, will say this. He'll say, you yourselves, like living stones, interesting, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Y'all, for this reason, the earliest of Christians believed that if you wanted to find the outpost of heaven on this side of the grave, on earth, you found it in the church. That's where you went, inside the strange local church. Now, these are lofty, heady sort of thoughts that we sort of throw around, but you have to be thinking to yourself, you know, Les, I can't think of one time that I was ever tempted to be in a church where I thought, you know what, this must be what heaven is like. (laughs) And that's okay to think that. 
But if that's sort of what you're struggling with, then the second description of the church I think is going to be just as helpful. Because what we say we believe in the creed is not just the holy, that is set apart church, but we believe in the Catholic church as well. Now don't let this trip you up. The creed does not say that it believes in the Roman Catholic church. Okay, that's not what it's saying. This, this creed is used by both Protestants and Catholics alike. What the word Catholic means is universal. It means worldwide. In other words, when we confess that we believe in a worldwide church, what we mean is, is that we believe in a visible church, a tangible church, a flesh and blood place that regularly meets to sing and to pray and to hear God's word from, her, from the, the mouth of the sovereign and to partake in the sacraments that show Jesus' real uh, presence there. Now look, in other words, it was where you met the tangible in God. Look, y'all, the point is this. The church is not an abstraction. It's something that you can see. It's something that is as tangible as the person who is a Christian sitting in the pew next to you. Look, you do yourself, let me just pitch this and I'll go to the next point. (laughs) You do yourself a great disservice, spiritually speaking, If you take the word church and relegate it to the purely spiritual, and by spiritual you mean has no real relevancy in my life at all, (laughs) you do yourself a great disservice at that point because the witness of Scripture and the weight of evidence coming from the vast majority of the last 2,000 years of church history is against you when you ignore being a part of Jesus' body. This is the way in which I've said this over the years. You cannot say that you believe in Jesus if you are not involved in what he says is his physical presence on the earth that we call the church. All right. (laughs) If you're not freaked out enough right now, let's see if we can continue on the process. And the second point, hope you want to establish the reality of the church. But secondly, we should see the meaning of the church. Look, because you really should be thinking to yourself, okay, this doesn't sound like anything I've ever heard before. But the real kicker to this story, I think, and in many ways the real explanation for it, comes in Saul's conversion. Look, Jesus comes to Saul and says something very weird. Mind you, uh, follow the way this goes, right? Saul's walking down the street, you know, he's got his friends with him. Bam, somebody appears to him in a huge blinding light, so much so that he's physically knocked down to the ground. And suddenly this entity looks at him and says, why are you persecuting me? Stop hurting me, he's saying. (laughs) Now, my guess is if you were wandering down the little alleyway there between the, the library and the square, and all of a sudden a rather large glowing being appears to you and knocks you down to the ground and says, why are you hurting me? <laughs> if they were the ones that knocked you on the ground, you would think to yourself, um, clearly there's a mistake here, all right? Um, I wasn't after you at all. Oh, I see. Maybe there's been some mistake. <clears throat> you see, I was after these people called Christians, you know, down in Damascus. They're the real problems here. I I was persecuting them, not you. And what does Jesus say? In effect, Jesus looks at Saul and says, what's the difference? 
In other words, Jesus is looking and trying to tell Saul something that will be repeated over and over and over again in Paul, Saul, to become Paul's letters. And you know what it is? It's basically this idea. Jesus looks at Saul and says, you have to understand, Saul, that the, the, the connection and the union and the fellowship and the intimacy that I have with my people is so deep and it's so profound that if you go after them, it's the same thing as you going after me. You want to know why? Because on the cross, Saul, I stood in their place so that they could stand in my place. I was judged so that they could be acquitted. I was stripped naked so that they could be clothed in my righteousness. In other words, what Jesus is saying is there is an intimacy, there's an identity that is wrapped up between me and my people, so much so that we can say that the witness of the Bible is that the most tangible, and I use my words very carefully here, the most tangible experience that you can have with Jesus on earth is to be involved with the people that make up his body. Now hear me on this. Some of you don't believe me, but I need to pitch it to you. Let's take, for instance, a couple of examples. Number one, have you ever read Psalm 87? Probably not. That's okay. Psalm 87 is a psalm about going to church or, in the Old Testament, going up to the temple. And the sons of Korah write this thing. And at the very end of the psalm, they say, all of my fountains, all of the springs of life that bubble up from me are in you. Now, here's what's weird. In the psalm, you don't exactly know who the you is. There are two possible antecedents to the pronoun you. So you didn't think that seventh grade English would ever become applicable. But at age 43, it actually is applicable. Here we go. The pronoun you, what's it stand for? It could be one of two things. It could be all of my springs of life are in you, O God. And, of course, the psalm mentions God regularly. But it could also read just as normally if it said, all my springs are in you, O people of God, as you gather together at the temple. Which one is it? Uh, Well, I actually found one commentator who would say that maybe the ambiguity in the pronoun is purposeful. In other words, if you would have gone to the sons of Korah all those years ago and said, hey, you know what? Or let's say we do this in heaven. That'll make it more interesting. Let's say in heaven we go up and we open up you know, the Bible and we're like, hey, sons of Korah, this last line here of your psalm, when you said all my springs of life are in you, did you mean God or did you mean like in the people of God? The idea is that the sons of Korah would look at you and say, what's the difference? Hmm. Let me give you another example. Matthew 18, we get this weird thing where Jesus looks and says, hey, where two or more are gathered in my name, I'm going to be there among them. Now, what we typically think when we read that is like, y'all, that's so weird. Oh, Jesus is here. We start looking for some sort of misty, cloudy, foggy presence or something. I think I feel it. I can feel the brush of angels' wings. (laughs) It's one of those songs that you hear in church where you're like, you didn't really think about that before you wrote that lyric, did you? Um. What Matthew 18 is saying is, is that 
when Jesus is there among us, it means that, here we go, you are Jesus to me tonight. Did you catch that? If the two of us are Christians, then you are Jesus to me, and I am supposed to be Jesus to you. Does that make sense? In other words, Jesus is constantly saying, there's an identification between me and my people. Let me give you a third example. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus predicts that the very end of time he's going to take, he's going to have a great separation. And to the people on his right, he's going to look and say, welcome, thank you, come in. Come in and enjoy fellowship. You want to know why? Because you fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me when I was naked. You visited me when I was in prison. And of course, the people on Jesus' right, he predicts, are going to look and be like, uh... We don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you've been gone for a while, Jesus. We, when did we ever do any of that to you? Remember what he says? He says, just as you have done to the least of these brethren. What? You did it to me. Same thing. Ministry to them is ministry to me because I am so identified with my people Look, for those of you who've been coming to RUF for any length of time, you know that I tend to harp a bit on this whole idea of how lightly the things of God tend to weigh on the hearts of people here at Old Miss. But I want to pitch at you that is it not possible that maybe one of the reasons why God can be such a triviality for us is because he is a pure abstraction now, you've heard me say before that if there is an abstraction that is purely an abstraction, it's God. I agree with that. But what if one of the reasons why we're failing so miserably in searching for God is because we're looking for him in the wrong place? Because God has said, if you want to know where the real action of Christianity is to be found, it's not somewhere in between your ears, <laughs> For most of you, one of the reasons why Christianity is so remote to you, remote, it's out there, is because it only exists here or here, wherever you want to put it. Everybody wants to freak out about their mind and their heart. Which one is it? It doesn't matter. It's inside. It's not tangible. You can't put your hands on it. But Jesus has been coming to say, guess what? You want to get a, do you want, do you want to feel what I'm like? Go find the poor. Go find the broken. I want you to join up, you ready with this? To the deeply frustrating, frighteningly real, repeatedly disheartening, and yet joyfully rich, powerfully healing, holiness creating people of God as they gather week in and week out in a regular service of worship and fellowship together. That's where the real action is on Sunday mornings of all places with the people of God as they gather as the church. That's the real meaning of the church, number two. Number three, and finally, but that brings us to the challenge of the church. Okay, we've seen the, the reality of the church. We've seen the meaning of the church. But this ought to put something in front of you because if you're paying attention tonight, you should be both half excited and half terrified for this reason. Excited because for many of you, you may be suddenly realizing that one of the reasons why you've been missing God is because you're looking for him in places where he never said he would be. Namely, on the inside of your head. Which honestly, 
will probably lead you to a whole lot more confusion. Get out of your head and into a group of people, real-life human beings with whom you can relate and speak and connect with and serve and love. But the other half of you will be terrified because you're sitting back there doing the math. (laughs) Because look... Look at the passage. The passage is our guide into this. Look, because the first person to meet, you know, Saul the murderer is poor Ananias. What a poor goof, right? This guy's sitting here minding his own business. But in verse 13 and 14, he looks and he's not too sure about what God is up to. God, there must be some mistake. I've heard of this man. And you don't understand This can't be the guy that you mean because the guy I'm thinking of wants to kill me. There's no way that that's who you're talking about. And so every fiber of Ananias' self-preservation has alarms going off. Ding, 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 ding. Stay away from him. Anybody but him, he must be thinking. But look what happened, though, to Saul, Paul. Look, here's the deal, y'all. Saul would have grown up as an Orthodox Jew. And what that meant for him in that time is that he grew up in a very clearly, very definitively segregated societal outlook. That is, Orthodox Jewish men at that time, we know from ancient history, had traditional prayers that they would wake up in the morning and pray every single morning. And it would go something like this. It would say, God, I want to thank you that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That just about offends everybody in the room, (laughs) right? Look, that's why it's so deeply radical. When Saul soon becomes Paul, and then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, declares there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, And there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in, in union with Christ Jesus. You know what Paul does? He explodes the alienations of traditional society. He just does. And Ananias does it too. Empowered by God's command, he goes in and the very first thing, what an amazing moment. I I love thinking about this. Look, Saul was struck blind. Now, blindness is a very big deal if you were a Jewish rabbi because you know what blindness means from the Old Testament. When you were struck blind, you were judged by God. And there sat poor Saul for who knows how long, painting. Can you imagine the crying, the weeping, the fear, the guilt, all of these things washing down upon him? And all of a sudden, here comes his first Christian. And do you see what the first words out of his mouth were? Brother Saul. In other words, Paul learned what it meant to have a kind word spoken to him. A kind word of welcome that was to him must have been the very hands of Christ into his life. And all of a sudden, Paul walks out of there a completely changed person. And he looks and says, you know what? There really cannot be racial segregations in the body of Christ. There really cannot be socioeconomic segregations in this life. 
There cannot be political segregations in this life. I'm get in trouble for this. There can be no Greek affiliation segregations in this body. Because here we don't measure people by the same way in which the world measures themselves. Jesus Christ comes and says, I am the great equalizer. I don't care whether you're the most religious Jewish rabbi or whether or not you are a a, a drug-addicted prostitute. You're both coming to me on exactly the same level. And for that reason, we don't make distinguishments the way in which the world does. The church comes in to be the great leveler of these things. I want you to really think about this for a minute. Your community is such a barometer of your identity, is it not? To whom are you attracted? And I don't mean romantically, but socially. Because Jesus is going to come, and if you're really going to find him, and challenge the most fundamental definitions of your identity and push you into relationship with people that otherwise you would never have associated with. In other words, you cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus unless you have found and tapped into a power and make no bones about it. It is the power of the Holy Spirit as we, decreed a couple, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago in the creed before. To find the power to dive into the mess that is other people's business. That's what we do. <laughs> That's, that's why I'm here, is to get involved in that person's life. Even the people, ready, ready, who are out to kill you, if you're like poor Ananias. And to serve that person and to love them for the rest of your life. That's the radical community. He comes to bring the Holy Catholic Church, but he comes to bring the communion of saints. And what a radical thing that we profess when we stand up and say we believe in that. Do we believe in that? One last thought. Where in the world do you find the power for that? What is it that can drag me out of the incredibly inwardness of my own view of the Christian life? Because for a lot of people, you're here and you have been horribly burned by bad church experiences. That's okay. And the thought of joining up to one is unthinkable to you. And I want you to know that that's all right. I'm saying to you that I understand. But I simply want us to do something. And the only way that I know how to illustrate it to you is to do it myself. It must be admitted and recorded for posterity that I realize that as a minister in what is known as the Presbyterian Church of America, I have voluntarily tethered myself to an institution whose record for living out this truth is terrible at best. Uh, the, The church in the 20th century, broadly speaking, but the Southern Presbyterian tradition in Mississippi specifically. And to be honest with you, I point not one finger to anyone in history except to me. It is my responsibility It is my responsibility that the church is the most segregated place on Sunday morning anywhere in the state. It's in the church. And I'll be honest with you, it's my people. And I'm talking about 
Southern Presbyterians that were at the front of leading those segregations. And we were wrong, extraordinarily wrong, because we didn't believe in the church. But here's what I'm praying for, and I'm inviting you in to pray with me, is that I also will be a part of a fruitful corner turning among my generation of white Christians in Mississippi who long to see our state transformed in different ways. I'm not denying the fact that racism is a mountain of problems that defy simple solutions. But I want to pitch to you that it's got to start here. It's got to start in the way in which I identify myself. I am not fundamentally a white man. I'm not fundamentally male. I'm not fundamentally Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I am fundamentally someone who follows Jesus. And I'm trying to repent of my natural segregation and by saying stupid things. Like, well, you know, we really don't like the same kind of music. Or, you know, we just, it's not that I don't like them. It's just we have cultural differences. Not in this place. (laughs) Not among the body of Christ. Look, and you're asking yourself, how in the world do you do that? Let me leave you with an image. Y'all, the New Testament's favorite image for the church is a bride. I love this. In Revelation 19, verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, But for the joy set before him, that is Jesus, he endured the cross. In other words, Jesus was able to go through what he went through on the cross because there was joy ahead of him. And you know what that joy was? His bride, the church, his people. You need to get that image down, Pat, because it's pictured for us at every wedding. I love doing weddings. I do a lot of weddings. We've done a lot this year. (laughs) But we love them. For this reason, I have the best seat in the house. They make me wear this long black robe. I look really weird in it. But in that robe, I can stand up, and the groom usually comes out with me first, and we stand at the head of the aisle just like this. And we stand back there, and in come all the attendants, you know, ladies in those dresses that you can cut off and wear again. (laughs) You can't. And then the guys come down, they always do something funny and wink at the groom, try to make him laugh. And all of a sudden, the doors close, right? And the music changes. And all of a sudden, everybody gets quiet. And then the mother, who's sitting down on the front row to my right, stands up. And the whole congregation stands up. And if you have an organist or some sort of musician who has a flair for the dramatic, typically they'll hit that thing hard. And the doors come flying open. And I love to sort of catch the glimpse of this guy's reaction right here. I got the best seat in the house because I get to see the bride and I get to see the groom and his reaction to her coming down there. And here's the deal, fellas, gentlemen, you are not prepared for that moment. I know right now you think you are. You're not. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much, how oftentimes you've seen her face. It will be nothing like that day. And the doors open wide and down she comes. And all of a sudden you'll see a lot of guys who suddenly are so overwhelmed by the experience that these big tears start streaming down their face. 
I don't know how racism actually gets sort of purged from the Lord Jesus' church, but I have a feeling that it's not going to happen until we get a vision of looking down the aisle, as it were, of our own salvation at Jesus at the head. You see, most people think when I hear that illustration to think, and you know what? That's exactly the way you ought to feel about Jesus, crying, you're so happy to see him. Let's pray. And then we end it that way. Oh, you're right. I'll try harder. No, no, no. That's not the image. Jesus is the one at the head of the aisle, and you're the one coming through the door in the imagery of revelation. And what you would see in the gospel, what Paul saw, saw, that made him look out and say, you know what? Who cares if they're Gentile or Greek or Jew? Who cares if they're male or female? Who cares if they're slave or free? They're my friends. You want to know why? Because we looked forward and we saw Jesus with big hot tears streaming down his face. So enamored he is. And one day we'll be at what Jesus has cloaked us to be. Whatever spiritual ailment keeps you from being able to be involved in the messiness, and ooh, is it ever messy, of a local church, I think the cure begins with a vision like that. What do you think? It's an invitation. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace to see just that? It is not natural to us to view you in that way. Lord Jesus, it is natural for us to see you with your arms crossed, with your foot tapping in frustrated impatience at how good of a job that we did this last week trying to follow you. But Lord Jesus, if we were convinced that you loved us in that way, we might be different. We might walk out of this place and actually be willing to sacrifice ourselves for people that we otherwise never would. And so, Lord Jesus, we all need a vision tonight as we sing this last song. We all need to see you in a way in which maybe we didn't see you before we came. That you want to identify with us so that we can love that person sitting next to us in a way in which we wouldn't be capable of otherwise. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you do that among us? Please don't waste our trip here. Let us walk out transformed so that maybe in 10, 20 50, 100 years, people will look back and say that racism began to be eroded in the state of Mississippi when God's people started being God's people. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.